0: Open to Ephesians chapter 2, the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. As you're turning there, just a quick word about our study of Ephesians, and uh, I know we joke a little bit about it, but I, uh, I must tell you that there, there's, there's a point that I think every preacher comes to that I've been told about when I was a younger man, and now not so much a younger man, I'm not ready to say I'm an older man yet, but my kids tell me differently, that um, you get to where you realize that you probably have more days behind you than ahead of you in your ministry, even in life. And as an expositor and as a preacher, that puts a certain kind of desperation every week on my own heart as I come to God's Word to study, to prepare for what we're gonna be looking at on Sundays. And, And I wanna confess that this has been such a sweet study thus far in Ephesians. You know, I'm looking at these passages and thinking there will probably not be another time in, the, in my future where we study this book at this depth, at this level. And so I know it feels like we're going slow. Let me just assure you, we are going as fast as, as I possibly can. Every phrase in this book just seems to be so wonderfully deep and rich with gospel application and meaning. And I, I wanna encourage you that as I'm studying all week to preach on Sunday, that you spend some time in the book of Ephesians filling up your soul so that you come with questions, so that you come ready to study this text and that we're all experiencing the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians chapter two. We've said that this whole, t- the whole study is the work and wealth of God in Christ Jesus. That's the theme of the book. The work of God, what he's done in the gospel, the wealth of God, what he's like in giving us the gospel. And it's a deep dive into that. Well, this morning we're going to be looking, strangely enough, at the believer's empty grave, which sounds a bit odd, but I trust as we get into this you will understand it. All the more. The believer's empty grave. This is isolated in verses 4 through 7. Let me read the whole context, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, all, we all f- also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There is a near-universal curiosity and fascination, sentimentality, with graves and with graveyards. One of the surprising parts of my own fascination over the last few decades is that I love to visit the graves of some of my pastoral and theological heroes. I've been to the grave of Charles Spurgeon. It's not easy to get to, by the way. It takes several buses to get there. I've been to the grave of John Wesley and Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Broaddus, George Whitfield, John Owen. I remember standing in a, in a particular sentimental moment at the grave of John Knox that is under a gold circle in parking spot 23, St. Giles Cathedral with... No headstone at all. I remember my wife and I weeping at the grave of Lady Jane Gray in England. I remember finally getting to the grave of Jonathan Edwards, my historical hero. In fact, outside my office is an odd picture. It's a blown-up picture. It's probably, I don't know, two feet by one feet, one foot. And it's a, it's a photo that someone gave me of Jonathan Edwards' crypt of his grave. It's a constant reminder to me of Edwards' life, of Edwards' influence. But there's something common to all of the graves that I've been to. They all contain the bones of the person whose name is on the headstone or Crypt. We typically call graves a final, what? Resting place. It marks the end of a life here on earth. That's important. Graves mark the end of a life. And you and I will all one day, unless the Lord returns, and we hope he does today, we will all be in a grave. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, Something happens radically different to ending up in a grave. When Abraham lost his wife Sarah to death at the age of 127, that's how old Sarah was when she died, he said something very telling. I want to read you these, these, these verses very briefly from Genesis chapter 23. Moses writes, now Sarah lived 127 years These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead, from the body of Sarah, and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site. Among you, listen, that I may bury my dead, bury Sarah, out of my sight. It's heartbreaking. He's burying his bride, he's burying Sarah and he had had the body for some days and wanted to bury Sarah out of his sight. Sight. That's what graves do. Death meant the end and he wanted, he needed to bury her out of his sight. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, Paul tells us that every person ever born is spiritually dead. We are in a spiritual graveyard, in our own graves as it were. In verse 4, as we saw last week, we come to those wonderful words that though we were spiritually dead, but, but God did something. He did something about our death. Said another way, think about Abraham. God did not bury us out of his sight. He didn't put us away from his vision, away from his focus to bury his sorrow. Instead, God performs a miracle of eternal significance by making the dead come to life. He saves us from spiritual death. We call that reality salvation. Saved. We're saved from. The wrath of God, yes, we are. We're saved from the devil and his influence, yes, we are. We're saved from our own sin, yes, we are. We're saved from our own internal influences, yes, we are. But we are also saved from being dead. After describing our spiritual death in verses 1 to 3, here in verses 4 to 7, Paul now points us to the gift of life called salvation. We're going to break down verses 4 to 7 together and discover three reasons to be amazed. You can, you can even say freshly amazed by God's gift of salvation. That's what Paul is doing here. He's showing us the contrast between what an unbeliever is and what a believer is. The contrast between being dead and being alive, between eternal wrath and destruction and hell and eternal joy and blessing and heaven and he gives us three reasons to be amazed by God's gift of salvation. And I think if Paul were here this morning, and he were covering these verses and telling us why he wrote this, he would say, really simple, I I want you to be amazed at the amazing gift of God in salvation. Let me give you three reasons. The first reason, by the way, is in verse four, because of what God is like. And Full disclosure, we covered verse 4 last week. It was the only thing we did was verse 4. It was so rich and so full. Let me review that for us. The first reason to be amazed by God's gift of salvation is God himself, what God is like. He is the God of salvation. He is a saving God. He is good and he does good. And we meet that after looking at our wretched state in verses 1 to 3. But, verse 4, but God... But God. Ho-de-theos. Which interestingly in the original says, but the God. We don't call God the God. But it's important the way he says that. The only true and living God. But God. And then he tells us a little bit about God in two parenthetical expressions. Being rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice that verse 4 simply highlights what God is like. Paul points us back to him. Before we see the the work and wealth of God, we see the character of God. Verses 5 and 6 highlight what God has done, and verse 7 is going to inform us of what God will do. But here we see what God is like. By the way, if you keep fast-forwarding in this big sentence, in verse 10, we're going to see the result of God's wealth and work in Christ and what the expectations are for you and me to live in that reality. Now, as we've noted before, the main subject in this opening paragraph, in the English, we, we, we make really neat sentences with subjects and predicates, with subject and verb and predicates, and, and it looks so, so tidy. But it's a little bit more complex and I think richer in the Greek, where the first subject in the whole sentence doesn't come until the word God in verse 4. And the first main verb doesn't happen until verse 5. And the main verb, we'll get to in a minute, is made us alive. God made us alive. That's the point of these 10 verses. God made us alive which is not that important until you understand that you were, what? Dead. I love the introduction of this main subject with theological grammatical drama, but God, but the living and true God. The central contrast between our being dead and God being a life giver. I told you last week that Paul explains this reality to the Colossians with the idea of spiritual rescue. Colossians 1.13, For God rescued us from the domain of darkness. We found out we're under the prince of the power of the air in verse 1. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What would make God want to rescue rebels What would make him desire to raise the spiritual dead? Why would God do this? Verse 4 tells us. Because of what he's like. Because of how he is. Here we find in verse 4 two attributes. We've looked at and studied many times the attributes of God. That's one of our books that we're reading as a church this year is The Identity and Attributes of God by Terry Johnson. Excellent book. Two attributes of God just explode out of Paul's mind as he sees what God did in contrast to our spiritual state. And that is mercy and love. God being rich in mercy. And we noted last week that Dane Ortland notes that this is the only attribute that God is said to be rich in. It's not that he's not rich in other attributes. This is unique where he says he's being, God is rich, wealthy, abounding in mercy. And also, it's interesting how he says that he, he loved us, but that's not enough. He loved us because of the great love he had. He has great love and that's what he uses to love us which tells me that God is happy to express himself to the beloved. He holds nothing back from those he loves. Now, we noted last time and we're going to pick it up a little bit more intently today. There are three workhorse words in this this sentence, one through ten. Elias, agape, and charis. Elias is mercy, Mercy is not giving what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve hell. God doesn't give us that, but instead God gives us grace. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. And the motive is said to be for that expression of rich in mercy and the expression of grace in the next verse, by grace you've been saved. I love the because, in verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us. The love of God. Point us to God. And we said last time that God's love is an undying commitment to do what's best for the beloved, no matter the cost or sacrifice. God's love is simply an undying commitment to do what's best for the beloved, the one loved, no matter the cost and no matter the sacrifice ultimately expressed in the cross, right? And we said also that God does not love us because he saved us. He saved us because he loved us. That's important. He looked at us in our wretched condition of verses one to three and loved us with a great love that he possesses in his character. Back in chapter one, verse The end of verse four and verse five, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He did that because of his love. Last week we looked in verse four at the three dispositions of God's saving nature. He's astonishing in his response to us, but God. He's rich in mercy toward us and he's great in love to us. And that's all review. Now we come to verse 5 and we meet the second reason to be amazed by God's gift of salvation. Not only because of what God is like, merciful and loving in verse 4, but now because of what God did, what God has done in the past. Paul shifts from the past to the future between verses 5 and 6 and verse 7. But he first points to the past, what God has done. Verse 5. He was merciful, he was loving, even when, and now he grabs those first three verses, we were dead in our transgressions. Where does it pick that up? Verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Even when we were in that state, God, there's the subject, here's the verb, made us Alive together with Christ. After four plus verses, we finally get to the main verb in this paragraph God made us alive. He grabs that situation from verse one, but he changes. You were dead, and now he says, We, we all together, were dead in our transgressions. Now, there's a lot of debate. Maybe the you was talking about the Gentiles, maybe the we is talking about the Jews. I would take a much more general approach. I think that's probably true technically, but I think he's saying, you were dead, but so was I. He's identifying with with them. We were dead, Paul himself, in our trespasses. He reiterates the reason for spiritual deadness in our transgressions, our sins. Sin simply separates us from, From God, how badly, so severely, it is described as being dead. Why does the death of a loved one crush us so much? Because it means a massive, extended distance and a lack of relationship with the one who's deceased. Sin does that between us and God. That's why he says we were dead in our transgressions. That's what made us dead before God. We weren't alive and then died. We were dead from our birth, Psalm 51 says. Born that way. This takes us, by the way, back to verse 20. Ephesians 1.20. He brought about in Christ salvation when God raised him from the dead, and remember this, seated him, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Interestingly, Paul uses different verbs to describe Christ's resurrection and our coming to life from the death. This is really interesting, and, and if you have a sharp perspective, you're going to understand this. We understand what the word resurrection means, to come back to life from the dead. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He resumed being dead, after, being alive after he was dead. That's not the word here. Oh, we will be resurrected. Revelation 20 says we're resurrected after we die, either to judgment or to eternal life. We will come back to life from the dead after we die physically. That's not what's going on here. Jesus was resurrected from the dead after being alive. This doesn't use that word, it says we were made alive. Made alive not having been alive before. This is not a simple resurrection. It's more than that. This is the new birth. This is coming to life from death after having never had life, spiritually that is. This coming to life is a mysterious solidarity with the reality of Jesus' personal resurrection And I want to tell you, we are in the deep end of the theological pool here. I can describe what's going on here. I cannot understand the depth of it. God raised Jesus from the dead physically. He will raise you and me. He'll he'll raise us physically from the dead if we know him to eternal life. But this is not talking about that right here. This is talking about... The fact that just as God raised Jesus, as sure as he raised him from the dead physically, he raised us supernaturally and spiritually from the dead to give us spiritual life. Listen to how Paul explains this to the Colossians. And I want to tell you, as we go through the rest of Ephesians, Colossians and Ephesians are parallel uh, um, uh, books. There's so much overlap between the two that we're going to kind of borrow back and forth to give some fuller meaning and explanation, Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, that just means associated with him in in our baptism, in which you you also were raised up with him through faith, not physically, through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Same idea. Just as physically God raised Jesus from the dead, he does the same for us spiritually. The accent here is on God's work. God made us alive. This is important. It wasn't self-help that made us alive. It wasn't trying harder that made us alive. It wasn't feeling bad about our sin that made us alive. It wasn't doing better. It wasn't turning over a new leaf. It wasn't a New Year's resolution No corpse gets out of the casket by self effort. God made us alive. He responded to our hopeless condition. He remedied our hopeless condition. He rescued us. And He reversed our hopeless condition from being dead to making us alive. How do you know you're alive? We're going to get to this next week. You know you're alive because by grace you have been saved through faith. You know you're alive because you believe the gospel. But verse 5 is interesting. And and I had such a wonderful time reading a dozen plus commentators on this next phrase here in verse 5. You you may have it in parentheses in in your Bible. By grace you have been saved. See that? Why is it in parentheses? Because it really is parenthetical. Paul says, By grace you have been saved, and you expect him to keep going, which he does in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we're going to get there next week. Sola gratia. We're going to study next week. Here, it leaks out. He, he He can't wait two verses to get there. He has to say, God made you alive. By grace, you've been saved. To show us that the salvation he gave us is God giving us grace, unmerited favor, what we don't deserve. And you have been saved. There's lots of kinds of salvation. Israel was saved from Egypt. Israel was saved from Assyria. Daniel was saved from the lion's den we're saved from the wrath of God, saved from sins. This is talking about being saved in the context from being dead. There is no worse condition from which we could ever imagine being saved than being dead. How did he do that? By grace. Elias, mercy, agape, love, grazia, grace. Incredible incredible that God is gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. Not only does he give us what we don't deserve, we're enemies and he gives us what we don't deserve. A few weeks ago I was downtown and uh, was stopped at a red light and sometimes there are there are folks asking for money at some of these red lights. I, there was a gentleman there. I didn't see him. He was over kind of behind a, a, a post and I was sitting there. I wasn't paying much attention and he came up. The, the light turned green and he, I don't hear very well and so he's, I think he was asking for money. money he's, he's being a little upset about it and and uh, um, I, I needed to go. The light had turned green and he saw that I was pulling off and he spit on my windshield. And I was mad. There was something that came up in me that I, I have hoped would was executed in my love for Christ over the years. It's still there in seed form. And I just thought, I'm gonna put this thing in park and we're gonna go tango right now, which was not the best thing a pastor should do. Um, it just did things in my heart that I didn't like. Well, I had to drive off, there were cars behind me, I couldn't even you know, interact with them or deal with them. And I have this stuff on my windshield. And then I realized how wicked it was that I was mad at him and realized that every time I sin, I'm spitting in God's face myself. And God in my wicked condition, gave and gives kindness and grace withholds what I deserve in mercy. And I was very convicted. This is the operating principle at work in salvation. Grace saves us. By grace, you have been saved. Now, I am tempted to do a deeper dive on this, but we're going to do that next week. So you got to come back next week in verse 8 when Paul goes deep, and we will with him on that little parenthetical expression. It's what the reformers called sola gratia. It's a Latin phrase that means grace alone. It means that salvation from sin and death is provided by God's unmerited favor alone. We can do nothing to earn it, which is the point of verse 8. Why is this statement here parenthetically? Why is it here at all? Well, I think because without God's grace, no one would ever be raised from the dead. He wouldn't make anyone alive outside of grace. And Paul makes sure we know that. Remember his assertion in Romans 3, we'll come back next week to this. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And yet, by grace, we're offered the gospel and and become saved. We're on that next week. But there's more here in verse 6. And he raised us up with him, making us alive. As Jesus was resurrected, we join his resurrection and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Back to verse 20 again. He brought about salvation in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. (laughs) Now Paul says he did that with us. Now, quick question. Do do you know what it's like in heaven to sit at the right hand of God? Can anyone tell me what colors you see, what sounds you hear, what sights you see? Can, Can anyone tell me that? And if you say yes, I'm gonna be nervous. So no, you can't. This is not talking about physically, but solidarity and our spiritual union with him. We will be there one day in heaven. This is saying incredibly that God has given us the best seat in the spiritual house. He's brought us from death to life just as he resurrected Jesus, positioned us in heaven where Christ sits sits where Christ dwells. Max Anders says this, really helpful. To be seated with Christ in the heavenlies is a figure of speech, meaning God considers us worthy and destined to be seated with Christ in heaven when we get there. He saved us a seat. God has decided to do it and it is good. Is as good as done. We just have to wait a few years until it happens. The significance of being seated with Christ is much the same as being seated at the head table of a banquet where there are many important people. It's a privilege and an honor, and it marks you out as one of the important people, too. Then he has this sentence (laughs) it's hard to even read. Anders says, we will be important in heaven. End quote. How do we know that? Why would we say that? Because he seats us with his resurrected, glorified son in heaven. Jesus himself said this to the Lay out of sins in Revelation three. He who overcomes, I, Jesus says, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. End quote. This is not talking about having a big wide throne with lots of bench real estate. This is talking about being seated in a place of honor and importance. I, I just, I don't even have a category for that. This is practical and this is helpful, not because of where we will be one day, but look at the phrase in verse six. With Christ Christ. That's what makes it important is that we will be seated, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter how honored, we will be seated with Christ. That's what God has done. He's made us to sit there spiritually one day physically. He saved us from our sins and made us alive from the dead if we believe. Why should we be amazed at the gift of God's salvation? Because of what God is like in giving it to us. Secondly, because of what has done, what he has done. And thirdly, because of what God will do. Th- this, this even gets almost crazy, unimaginable, wonderful. So that, now in the Greek, that's a henna clause. Henna clauses are purpose clauses. They they happen because it, it means this is what is the result. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches, the overwhelming wealth of his grace in kindness toward us. There's the grace in Christ Jesus. Everyone. Everyone likes to show off. I, I'm sorry, that's just part of who we are. We, li- we like to show off about all sorts of things. If you will get near Kim or me any time in the next few days, you will likely see a picture of our grandson. We, we just, sh- sh- how's life? Can I show you, Charlie? You know, what'd you have for lunch? Can I show you, Charlie? what did you do yesterday? Well, I know what Charlie did. It, it's just, we like to show off. All of us like to show off something. Not all showing off as pride, by the way. Sometimes it's a true and genuine sharing of something special. Let me give you a a perfect example. A few weeks ago, our church graciously honored Kim's and my ministry here at Mission Road Bible Church for the past 10 years. Thank you again for doing that sweet day of celebration. And at that celebration, you gave me a, an original copy of a sermon manuscript from Charles Spurgeon, with his own personal handwriting and notations and edits to the manuscript. It is a lifelong treasure. By the way, we're, there, we're in the process of getting it hung right now. We're actually going to paint the wall before we hang it. Thank you, Myron. And uh, when it's hung in the office center, you're all welcome to come by and look at it. It'll just be out here. We're putting it in a place outside where the sun, I'm being pretty protective of this, outside where the sun comes in because I don't want it to fade it. So we put some thought into it. Well, think about this. For me to display that treasure, is that showing off anything I've done? No, not at all. It is to point to something someone else did and not to me at all. Here's something amazing here in this verse. <laughs> I don't even have the language for this. God shows off what he's done in us. God is putting something on display that he has done and he will do. This is not pride, it is his glory. Notice two things here in verse seven. First, he says, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come. We're gonna be trophies. Believers are trophies of God, put on display as believers. but Here's the question. Who is God displaying or showing us off to? Did you ever think about that? Who gets to see this and say, wow? Well, there's some options. It could be the angels, and that would be a good uh, uh, um, estimation of what this means. In 1 Peter one twelve. The angels, angels long to look into the glories of salvation. So no doubt part of it is God showing the angels, look what I did. They didn't get that chance. They were never offered grace or mercy. The angels that fell became demons and were never offered salvation. So the angels now look at God doing salvation with us and go, wow, so he's going to be showing us off to them, sure. Also, the devil and the demons. In chapter 4, verse 8, Paul will tell us that God led captive a host of captives. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, we've learned. So it's showing off and spiking the ball that the devil doesn't win. But we also can say he's showing us off to other believers. Yes, we will be forever amazed at our salvation and that of every other believer. Look at, back at chapter one, verse six. We will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Looking at each other, looking at our own self, that's awesome as well. But the one who will enjoy the wonder of God saving us sinners most is, drumroll, God himself. He is displaying forever in us to himself his nature in salvation. Listen for just a moment to God's nature in salvation in Isaiah chapter 43, verse one. One and following, really. But alas, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Forever, God will look at believers and say, mine. No longer the devils, no longer ourselves. He goes on, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. End quote. A believer is a twice made person, made in the image of God in our birth and made alive in our salvation. Something else here in verse seven. Notice that The display is in the ages, plural, to come. You see that? In the ages, plural. Paul spoke of the age to come back in chapter 1, verse 21. This is different. This is the ages to come. It suggests that God's glory displayed in the salvation of believers will never diminish throughout all eternity and all of time. Every successive age in the future. And then the last in the verse, the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That reminds us in chapter 1 that he predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. And in 1 verse 9, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, God is kind. God is kind. Isn't it easy for us, because we can be so self-condemning, to project on God that he is unkind, unloving, impatient? What do we do with these truths? Well, the greatest threat to every person is death. The worst condition is our spiritual death. That makes the greatest hope to be a necessary resurrection or a necessary work of God to make us alive, spiritually and physically. The believer's spiritual grave is empty. As empty as the tomb they laid Jesus in, This day. So we should be practicing, be in constant practice now for what we will do in heaven. I was thinking about this passage this week, and it drew me to Revelation chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 9. John says, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, everybody, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's not saying God gets saved, it's saying salvation belongs to, is credited to God. Then in verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We sing several songs that speak of salvation being our song song. Is salvation the song that your heart sings? Can I just speak to you as a believer if you know the Lord Jesus? Do your affections need to be rattled a little bit this morning with gratefulness and thanksgiving? You're dead and God made you alive. We are truly to be amazed by grace. Grace. It's easier to sing amazing grace than it is to be amazed by such grace. We need to be amazed by grace. We're gonna start studying that next week. I have no promises how long it'll take us to get through that. But we need to be amazed by the work and the wealth of God in Jesus Christ. If you know him, we know why we we're to be amazed. Let me invite you, if you're if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, my my begging plead to you is don't leave without thinking about your condition as a dead man or woman before God. Let us lead you to understand what it means to become a Christian to be a son or daughter of God, to worship Him and have your life recalibrated today.